I was in my late 30s and David's inspiring discussion of all the people who found success later in life forced me to confront the possibility of leaving my law firm job with a kind of honesty I hadn't been capable of before then. I discovered that while the thought of leaving the comforts of a predictable paycheck was indeed terrifying, the idea of living out the rest of my life with the road stretching straight out ahead of me until it pierced the horizon with no bend, no deviation, no nothing. Well, that scared me a whole heck of a lot more. That discussion with David was actually a podcast episode that I listened to back in 2018. It's one of three episodes that literally changed my life. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. So the other day, I was listening to episode 714 of the Ritual Podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts other than my own, and it was with Dr. Robin Chutkin. And I was listening during my run the other day and was absolutely blown away by Dr. Chutkin's ability to deliver such a powerful message about taking ownership of our health in such a nuanced and compassionate way. Now, not surprisingly, this made me think of episode 192, which was Dr. Chutkin's first appearance on the RRP, and it was also my first introduction to her work, and it was in connection with her second book, The Microbiome Solution. That book, together with her podcast episode, changed my life. Now, the Korean Vegan Podcast is, as we always like to say, about figuring out how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. And as much as I like to share my own stories and my own thoughts about how to pursue joy in every moment of the day, I also think it's important to share the work of other content creators, thought leaders, and professional conversation holders, <laughs> if you will, or podcasters, who've really made an impact on my own life. So this week on the Korean Vegan Podcast, I thought we could actually go over the three episodes of the Ritual Podcast that made such an indelible impression on me that I can literally say they changed my life with the hope that perhaps listening to them might change yours. So without further ado, let's get into it. Why I add beans to my kimchi chike. <laughs> I know. Some of you are either retching at the cultural misappropriation embodied in the addition of black beans to my kimchi jjigae, or some of you are going, what is kimchi jjigae? Well, let's answer the latter because it's a lot easier. Kimchi jjigae is a popular Korean stew made out of, you guessed it, kimchi. 
Kimchi jjigae has been around for hundreds of years, dating back to the 1500s. So suffice it to say, adding black beans to it is probably not the only deviation from the quote, original and authentic recipe <laughs> over the past 500 years. Now, while the word kimchi refers to a variety of pickled vegetables, cabbage, cucumber, radishes, etc., spicy and not spicy, and at different stages of fermentation, Kimchi jjigae is typically prepared with spicy Napa cabbage kimchi that is fermented past the point that most people would enjoy eating raw. So if you've got yourself a jar of really smelly kimchi, it's time to make kimchi jjigae. It turns out that the um, concentrated kimchiness of overripe kimchi is the best ingredient for a rich dynamic stew. One of the things I love so much about Korean food is how the Buddhist ethos against waste embeds itself in so much of our cuisine. Kimchifying a vegetable is, of course, a mechanism for ensuring its longevity, providing enough food during the winter months when cabbage doesn't grow. But even when pickled cabbage gets a little hmm, too funky, <laughs> it won't spoil. It just gets really, really pungent. We come up with a way to make something delicious out of that, too. So here's why I decided to add black beans to my kimchi jjigae. Dr. Michael Greger is the author of one of my favorite books of all time, How Not to Die, which I've read front to back like five times. In it, he provides folks with a handy dandy list of foods we should all aspire to eat on a daily basis. I discovered Dr. Greger by listening to episode 199 of the Ritual Podcast and instantly downloaded his book. I then proceeded to listen to the audible version on just about every long run that following summer because it inspired me to take control of my body while I was physically taking control over my body by running. Of all the different foods Dr. Greger covers in his books and YouTube channel, the two that stood out to me due to sheer repetition were A, turmeric, and B, beans. The former due to its powerful anti-inflammatory properties and no, curcumin supplements are not going to cut it as Dr. Greger emphasizes. And in fact, some recent studies suggest that curcumin supplements might actually be harmful and the latter, i.e. beans, because of their high fiber content. A half a cup has nearly as much fiber as it does protein. Amazing. Personally, I think it's a little ambitious to try and incorporate all 12 things on Dr. Greger's daily dozen into my daily diet. But as Dr. Greger often likes to say, he's not telling us what to do so much as giving us the facts so that we can then figure out what we want to do. I like to pick a couple off his list to work on every few weeks and beans have been my favorite. Here's some other fun facts that I picked up from Dr. Greger's books and have sort of seeped into my daily life. Number one, you've probably heard me say this a million times in my videos, color equals antioxidants. Therefore, pick a darker version of your favorite veggies, i.e. purple sweet potatoes, red cabbage, red onion, etc. for more nutrition and cancer-fighting bang for your buck. The peel is where it's at. So don't be in such a rush to peel your potatoes, carrots, and other veggies. Not only are we sort of kind of wasting food that way, that's where a lot of the flavor resides. That's actually something that I learned from my whisk mole, my aunt, and not from Dr. Greger, but it's also where much of the nutrients and fiber hides. 
So just give your veggies a really good scrub and keep those skins. Chop that broccoli. Again, if you've been watching the Korean vegan cooking videos for some time, you've probably heard this before. So there is some truth to the notion that when you cook vegetables, in many cases, you will substantially reduce its nutritional impact. But Dr. Greger imparts a wonderful hack, which is like really perfect word for this tip, when it comes to broccoli and saving the nutritional value in broccoli. You chop it up, 35 to 45 minutes in advance of cooking, and you will retain far more of the green's nutritious value than if you were to cook it immediately. Now, if you don't have time to chop so far in advance, add a little bit of mustard powder and you're good to go as well. I think that's so amazing. You can check out Dr. Greger's video on broccoli to see why that's the case, but I have been chopping up my broccoli half hour before cooking ever since I've heard that tip. Finally, nuts are not the culprit. Nuts are definitely calorically dense, and as a result, I think many people are worried they'll lead to unwanted weight gain. While Dr. Greger doesn't suggest eating them by the cartful every day, they are on his daily dozen for a reason. They're full of healthy fats that will curb hunger pangs, and those wretched munchies that got really freaking aggressive during quarantine, I don't know about you, but they did for me, and they actually haven't backed off since. Now, I like to keep a measuring cup next to my bag of nuts to make sure I don't overdo it, especially if they are salted nuts, but I never feel badly about snacking on almonds, cashews, Brazil nuts, because as Dr. Greger explains, the notion that people are gaining weight from eating nuts is, well, nuts. Now, you can find episode 199 of the Ritual Podcast with Dr. Greger, as well as the recipe for my kimchi jjigae with black beans in the show notes below. Why I stopped showering every day. (laughs) Oh, God. Maybe a little TMI, but I think it's really important to talk about this. So you may remember back in 2021 when Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher were literally subjected to accusations of child abuse. Like I saw this with my own eyes because they admitted they don't bathe their children every day. According to Mila Kunis, this is simply an extrapolation of her own daily hygiene habits. She never showered every day because growing up, she didn't have regular access to hot water. So I decided at the time, I wasn't going to say anything. (laughs) I would refrain from tweeting about the subject, though I do have very strong opinions on daily showering. I showered every day for most of my life. In fact, there were many days when I showered twice because I lived a very active lifestyle over the past decade. And then I heard Dr. Chutkin, author of The Microbiome Solution, on the Ritual podcast in 2016, a few months after it was recorded. And now, yes, I am that family member that everyone likes to joke about for not showering. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like I never shower. (laughs) I just don't shower every day. And according to Dr. Chutkin, here's why. You may know that the microbiome is made up of hundreds of trillions of bacteria, viruses, fungi, and protozoa that live inside the human body. If this is your first time encountering this fact, don't freak out. Germs can be good for you, I promise. They ward off disease, help you get over illnesses faster, and can even make you feel less sad about a bad breakup. 
You may also know that there is a growing body of research, literally grows exponentially on a daily basis, that continues to clarify the critical role the microbiome plays in the health and happiness of the human body. Studies on the microbiome all seem to conclude that the microbiome is indeed the key to long life and well-being. While many people believe that the microbiome is interchangeable with, quote, the gut, the truth is that the microbiome doesn't just reside inside us, but also on us. There are literally millions of bacteria that compose the skin microbiota living on our epidermis. Thus, when we shower too often, too long, too hot, or with too much product, we run the risk of disrupting the fragile ecosystem that regulates our health and even our immune system. According to Dr. Chutkin, bathing every other day is more than enough, and even once a week is sufficient if you're not a big sweater. When you do shower, you should keep it to less than 10 minutes and avoid using antibacterial cleansers all over your body. Why? Because antibacterial soaps are indiscriminating. It's not like Dial's R&D department was like, yeah, let's make a soap that's so smart it can distinguish between the good bacteria and the bad bacteria and only kill off the latter. That kind of soap, I'm sorry, that doesn't really exist. And even if it did, you're not going to find it at Target. Accordingly, you are not just killing the, quote, bad germs that you may have picked up when you bought the soap at Target. You're also killing all the good germs, the kind that might prevent you from getting that cold going around the office. As Dr. Chuckin put it, Dirt doesn't cause disease, but repeatedly killing off good bacteria on your skin may actually harm our immunity. And at least one study in the U.S. confirms Dr. Chutkin's thoughts on overshowering. Now, I'm not a big believer in anecdotal evidence, which is why I've linked the study that I just mentioned in the show notes below, but I will say Ever since I reduced the amount of time I spend underneath the shower head, I've only gotten sick once in five years, and it was COVID, which I managed to avoid for two and a half years. This is despite the fact that I live with someone who gets sick every few months, who also happens to shower multiple times a day. Other fun facts I learned from Dr. Chuckin include, during the 1918 pandemic, soldiers who slept outside recovered from illness at a significantly higher rate than the officers who slept in tents. Accordingly, there is some thought that exposing our bodies to nature can have a direct impact on our immune system. Mucus can be good. I know we all like, ew, mucus is so gross. But you know what? Mucus is designed to be protective, a literal barrier between your body and viruses. In fact, according to Dr. Chutkin, when we take cough syrups and other medications that cause us to, you know, essentially dry things out, there's a chance that the cold, flu, or whatever is causing your cough and congestion will actually linger or get worse. One of the most useful things I learned from Dr. Chutkin is that sometimes it's important to get comfortable with being a little uncomfortable instead of instantly reaching for relief. Speaking of sweet relief, Motrin or other NSAIDs should, if possible, be taken in moderation. 
This is probably not news to many of you, as I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets like really bad tummy aches after popping some ibuprofen. But even a moderate dosage, like 800 milligrams, which is what my oral surgeon prescribed after I got my wisdom teeth pulled, has been known to cause ulcers and can thus disrupt the health of your microbiome. Leaky gut, anyone? (laughs) Accordingly, you should take the lowest dosage possible for the smallest amount of time. Now, obviously, neither Dr. Chutkin, an actual doctor, nor I, not an actual doctor or even a theoretical one, neither of us is suggesting that you should ever supersede your own physician's advice with what you find on the interwebs or what you read in a book or hear in a podcast. Your health is your health. However, I did find these little tidbits of information incredibly eye-opening and at the very least provoked more investigation. Again, you can listen to Dr. Chutkin's first RRP appearance as well as her most recent conversation with Rich in the show notes below. So do enjoy. Finally, why I left my corporate job. This one probably is the most impactful of the RRP episodes that I listen to. And of course, I've already written and talked about it a lot, so I won't repeat myself much here. I will simply say that I was listening to RRP 466 with David Epstein, New York Times bestselling author of Range, and I started to believe ever so slowly that perhaps I wasn't too old to dream again. I was in my late 30s and David's inspiring discussion of all the people who found success later in life forced me to confront the possibility of leaving my law firm job with a kind of honesty I hadn't been capable of before then. I discovered that while the thought of leaving the comforts of a predictable paycheck was indeed terrifying, the idea of living out the rest of my life with the road stretching straight out ahead of me until it pierced the horizon with no bend, no deviation, no nothing. Well, that scared me a whole heck of a lot more. But I think what really uncuffed me from my fear was the idea that I was allowed to fail over and over and over. As we talked about a few weeks ago in an earlier podcast, The Art of Failing, One of the most electrifying parts of David's book is not that it gives us permission to fail, but actually suggests that repeated failure is an indispensable part of the formula for success. All of a sudden, running down a rabbit hole that led to a quote, dead end, didn't sound so unappealing to me anymore. Dead ends aren't a waste of time. You will learn from them about where not to go next at a minimum and, just as critically, why you are chasing this particular rabbit in the first place. In other words, the person you become when you climb out of that rabbit hole won't be the same person who went in. And that incremental growth is precisely what you need in order to achieve the kind of purpose you seek. I will never forget the moment I squarely faced off with the idea of quitting my full-time gig at the firm. I was sitting at my desk in early November 2020, and my phone was ringing off the hook with new clients on the largest crypto bankruptcy that had ever been filed at that time under Chapter 11 of the Bankruptcy Code. I was one of the few persons in the world who knew a thing or two about both crypto and Chapter 11, and it seemed 
all the hard work I'd put into this like strange side project, i.e. writing extensively about blockchain technology and bankruptcy, was finally paying off. At the same time, my inbox was pinging me every three minutes with emails from an editor at The Atlantic who was working with me and my co-author Brad Moss on my very first op-ed on a topic that I not only held some expertise, but some incredibly strong opinions. Meanwhile, I was on and off the phone with the firm's PR manager about my TikToks blowing up and exactly what I could and couldn't post about on social media as a partner at a large law firm. I hadn't felt this overwhelmed since the week before my first wedding, (laughs) when a phone call from my wedding planner to remind me that my seating chart was due while I was simultaneously trying to finish a memo and preparing to defend my first deposition pushed me to put my head down on my desk and burst into tears. I was talking to a Bitcoin hodler while trying to type up a response to the Atlantic editor at the same time when I remember thinking to myself, I can't do this anymore. I can't do both the Korean vegan and be a partner at the same time. One of these things has to go. Later that day, the op-ed was published. And seeing my name next to something that I felt was so overtly in support of justice, fairness, and what was right I won't say it was then and there that I decided to take on David's hypothesis, but it was the flick of the finger that started a cascade of dominoes that led straight to Southern California, where I would, months later, meet Rich Roll in person, who would then ask me, so why are you still a lawyer? You can listen to RRP 466 with David Epstein in the show notes below. Well, I hope those three RRP episodes that changed my life might be of some help and thought provocation to all of you. And with that, we'll now turn to... Ask Joanne. So every week I invite listeners as well as newsletter subscribers to submit questions on which they're seeking advice and it can be about anything. This week, Layla has asked, hello, Joanne. I've developed a crush on a man I work with. We became great friends for a year and in February we became intimate. I was over the moon. I thought he loved me. We used to cuddle and hug and I even made him something cool for his birthday. However, One day, he said I became too attached, that he couldn't love me because I was too young. He's 30 and I'm 20. I remember sobbing in his car for what felt like forever. He said he still wanted to be intimate, but as friends. I agreed, thinking if I gave him what he wanted, he'd eventually fall in love with me like I did him. However, he just told me we couldn't be intimate anymore because he's starting to date another girl. And this just felt like it ripped me apart having to keep my cool while thinking, why didn't we go on dates? Why doesn't he love me for me? I feel jealous of a woman I don't even know. I just want to know how to dispel these terrible feelings I have. I just feel so sad and worthless. How can I be kinder to myself and move on? So Layla, first of all, I am so sorry that you were going through this. There's no point in sugarcoating it. Heartbreak of this kind is painful and can sometimes last a lot longer than you'd like. 
When someone breaks up with you, it's not unlike when someone you care about passes away, particularly if the dissolution of your relationship comes unexpectedly. Even if the object of your affection is still alive, the relationship you had and all the hopes you had for that relationship has, for all intents and purposes, died. Therefore, I think it might be helpful to view this through the lens of mourning. What would you tell a good friend if they came to you and told you that someone they loved passed away? Would you judge them? Would you criticize them for causing the death of their loved one? Would you advise them to think over and over again about what they could have done to prevent that death? No, of course not. And therefore, you should stop doing the same to yourself. You are not, quote, worthless because this relationship didn't work out. And I got to tell you, there are probably dozens of people reading your question, myself included, who might have done the exact same thing you did, agree to have an intimate relationship with a person, quote, as friends, with the hope that they'd eventually come around to seeing you as more than that. Practically speaking, I found the most effective way to be kinder to myself is literally to think of myself as a separate person. Once more, I suggest recording your thoughts via voice memos or even a voice recording journal. Now, everyone who's recorded their voice and listened to it for the first time, they all say, oh my God, that's what I sound like in real life. And I think it's because of how alien our own voices sound to us that we are able to achieve this level of detachment to be kinder to ourselves, to think of ourselves as different from who we are. After listening to you voice your thoughts out loud, talk back to yourself in the same way you would talk to your best friend, little sister, or someone else who looks up to you for protection and empathy. I also think that while it's important to do what feels right, you know, sit in your room by yourself, watch Anna Green Gables on repeat, eat chocolate every day, all of those things, it's sometimes equally important to do things that feel hard. Go out for a walk, even if you don't feel like it. Get dressed up and go out with your friends, even if you don't feel like it. Cook something you love to eat and then invite a good friend to eat it with you, even if you don't feel like it. Sometimes, even if you don't feel particularly nurturing towards yourself, forcing yourself to pretend that you do will actually stimulate the emotional fortitude you previously lacked. Finally, start doing the things that make you Layla. Before you met this person that you started having a crush on, what did you like to do for fun? Who did you usually talk and text with during your free time? What was your favorite thing to watch on TV? What are the things you're really good at? What are the things that make you so valuable to your family and friends? Why do they like hanging out with you so much? Why do they find you indispensable? Now, whether you write down or voice note the answers to these questions, it's also important to act on them. If what you've always enjoyed doing is surfing, go out and surf, even if you don't feel like it at first. If you like watching mysteries, get on Netflix and watch Vatican Girl for the next few hours. If you're the girl that your friends count on for being the life of the party, then when you're ready, throw that freaking party. If you're the girl that your friends lean on when things get tough, then when you're ready, pick up that phone and tell a friend, hey, I'm going through a thing right now. Do you mind if I lean on you for a bit? Because we all know that being vulnerable for people who are usually the sounding board or safety net 
is the toughest thing we can do. In other words, Layla, recovering from this breakup and dispelling the bad feelings associated with it begins by reacquainting yourself with you. Because somewhere in the throes of your romance, I think you may have lost a little bit of Layla and now is the time to find her. It will be difficult, ugly, and taxing at times, but I promise you, Layla, the work you do right now in these hard moments will ensure that you will never, ever again accept a love that has you asking whether you are worthy of it. Instead, this work will help to ensure that your next love is one that is worthy of you. Wishing you all the best. Thanks, Layla, for submitting your question, and I wish you the very best of luck in recovering from this heartbreak. If you have a question on which you're seeking advice, make sure to hit the link below and ask Joanne. All right, updates and random things. We'll start with what I'm watching, which I'm really excited to talk about in case you missed it in the Ask Joanne. I watched this amazing documentary called The Vatican Girl, which is mostly in Italian. Some of it is in English as well. And man, it's on Netflix. It was absolutely riveting. It covers the disappearance of a young girl in Rome back in 1983 and whether or not the Vatican may have played a role in her abduction. The series was so well done, focusing primarily on interviews with the abductee's older brother, who is incredibly well-spoken and super passionate we also just started The Vow, which is a documentary series on HBO Max about the cult Nixium. You may have heard of it. Anthony and I have already had a couple of bang out, super deep, like debate slash conversations sparked by this show. And for that alone, I think this one has already proved its value. I highly recommend both The Vatican Girl on Netflix as well as The Vow on HBO Max if you're looking for your next super immersive experience. This is just a quick reminder that Now Serving LA, I think, has a couple more copies of the signed Korean Vegan Cookbook if you wanted to pick those up for the holidays. What I'm cooking. Well, this week I wanted to make something super soothing, delicious, and full of kimchi. My friends over at Chungga Kimchi, they actually gifted me with their new vegan kimchi and I wanted to give it a try. And I was like, guys, I can't make any guarantees because most of the time store-bought vegan kimchi is not good. <laughs> but I was so pleasantly delighted by Jungka's uh, vegan kimchi, I decided to make some kimchi noodles or kimchi kuksu. But instead of making them cold, because we are very much in fall, it's like 50 something degrees here, even in SoCal, I decided to make it hot. I started by developing a broth, which is very similar to how I would make kimchi jjigae, which we just talked about earlier. Then I added some cooked somyeon or Korean style wheat noodles. And you can pick those up at any Korean grocery store. I garnished it all with a little bit of just egg folded, sesame seeds, green onion, and of course, a little bit more kimchi. We'll be adding that to the TV meal planner this week. So make sure to check it out. If you'd like some inspiration, however, in the meantime, we'll include a link to the video of myself making these kimchi noodles in the show notes below. All right.
we're at that part, parting thoughts. The past several days, I've been thinking a lot about the following question. How can I make the world a better place? This question takes on greater urgency as more and more people build or purchase platforms that reach far beyond my own while having a vastly different definition of better at best or a determination to scar the world before they exit at worst. It's true that better for whom is a valid consideration when defining the shape of a quote better world, but it seems some of the planet's most influential people are incapable of evaluating the quote greater good without also ensuring some rather large measure of self gain. It would seem that all people, regardless of politics, religion, or creed, should agree that the preservation of life, nature, and intention is a worthy endeavor. And yet, there are those that wield their immense influence to accelerate the Earth's collision with actual, and I mean literal, destruction. All in all, the question, how can I make the world a better place, stops being an investigation of possibilities, but rather one of prevention. How can I make sure things don't get worse? I'm reminded of that scene from Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum's character flirts with that female scientist via a somewhat handsy (laughs) explanation of chaos theory, a premise that asserts that complex consequences can spring from seemingly simple systems. For example, however many times you've observed the way a particular ball bounces off the surface of your hardwood floors at most you'll likely be able to predict only a few seconds of the ball's trajectory and even final destination. There's a temptation then to say, F it all, what's the point of throwing the ball if there's no way to predict exactly how it will bounce? But can't that be a good thing too? The point is, there is no way to always know with 100% certainty where the small steps you take today will lead you tomorrow. What if the first person to melt an ice cube decided to quit before the temperature hit 32 degrees Fahrenheit because the first 31 times, nothing happened? We would all be stuck in the ice age. In the same way, even though it may be easier to believe that our individual actions bear little to no significance, we should take hope in knowing that it's often the imperceptibly small impact, just like the invisible changes going on inside that ice cube that can lead to life-altering consequences in not just your life, but in all of ours. Thus, in answer to the question, how can I make the world a better place? I have three words, my friends. Don't give up. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. 
If you liked what you heard today, do me a favor and hit that subscribe button if you haven't already and leave a comment and rating below. And if there was something particularly inspiring or insightful about this episode or any other episode of the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you shared it with your friends, your colleagues, your loved ones, your family, or even on social media. In the meantime, I wish you a beautiful, lovely, and wonderful day. Day.